0: Back in the 1930s, in Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union, Soviet scientist Trofen Lysenko came up with the idea that human genetics was a bourgeois science and had to be suppressed at all costs. Instead, Lysenko supported Lamarckism, the idea that an organism can pass on to its offspring physical characteristics that the parent gains through the use or disuse during its lifetime. Since the USSR was in the process of creating from scratch the new Soviet man, Lamarckism coincided well with official doctrine. According to human genetics theory, traits are passed from parents to biological children through genes, not through Lamarckism. So all that had to be suppressed, and Soviet scientists who refused to renounce genetics were fired from their jobs, and hundreds, if not thousands, were imprisoned. Some were even sentenced to death as enemies of the state. Lysenko's ideas contributed to the famines that killed millions of Soviet people. And the same thing happened in communist China, resulting in the great Chinese famine of 1959 to 1962. That was the deadliest famine and one of the greatest man-made disasters in history, with an estimated death toll due to starvation in the tens of millions. Jay, is this sort of suppression of science that conflicts with official doctrine happening today in the climate field? Tom, it
1: is happening exactly the same today in America and really the whole world as it happened in the Soviet Union decades ago. it's, It's really crazy. Crazier for me, I think, than most. I've been at climate change studies for 50 years, going back to the 1970s when everybody thought we'd have a glacier coming down on the United States and global cooling was the fear. And I never would have believed that the entire world uh, could be conned into believing that man controlled the temperature of the planet. It's arrogant, it's absurd. There is no scientific support for it at all. And yet the vast majority of citizens of our planet actually believe that things that we do control the temperature of the planet rather than forces within the, uh, the solar system. It is uh, definitely a form of Lysenkoism, as I said, when I started studying in the 70s and and on into 80s, I thought it would be over long ago. I never thought Al Gore would play a role. We'll talk about that a little more. But it's sad that if you're not a real student of the past, you uh, you, you will repeat what happened in the past, and that's exactly what's going on. So it's... uh, Going to be exciting in this show to deal with the history of the progressive liberalism that has led the world in the wrong direction to believe things that are absolutely untrue. And we are very excited to have a man who I consider one of the most important historians of climate change and progressive liberalism in, in the world. And uh, his name is Bonner Cohen, And Tom, tell our audience a little bit about Bonner.
0: Yeah, sure, Jay. Our guest today is Dr. Bonner R. Cohen, a senior fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based National Center for Public Policy Research, where he concentrates on energy, natural resources, and international relations. Dr. Cohen received his B.A. from the University of Georgia and his Ph.D. from the University of Munich. Articles by Dr. Cohen have appeared in many newspapers and magazines in the United States and Canada. He's been interviewed on Fox News, CNN, Fox Business Channel, BBC, and many other networks. Dr. Cohen has testified before the U.S. Senate Committees on Energy and Natural Resources, as well as Environment and Public Works, and also the U.S. House Committees on Natural Resources and Judiciary. He also presented at conferences all over the world, for example, in September of this year at the Doctors for Disaster Preparedness Conference in Las Vegas. We'll link to the video of that excellent talk that I was watching last night, Jay. It was really good. As well as his book, The Green Wave, Environmentalism and Its Consequences, when this show goes to podcast on Monday. So welcome to the show, Bonner. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Tom. (laughs) Yeah, good to have you.
1: All right, Bonner, our program today will focus on the history of the liberal takeover of much of the world and your study of the impact of eugenics that destroyed Russia for decades and how it helped institute the climate change fraud. Give us a summary of its beginnings.
2: Uh, This is a a fascinating story, Uh, one uh, that began really in the 19th century. And let me cite some remarks, not from the 19th century, but from just a few months ago uh, that will help us establish the link between the origins of the environmental movement going back over 150 years and where we are today. In June or July, uh, a gentleman by the name of Yuval Harari, an historian, a futurist, And, tellingly, an advisor to the World Economic Forum was holding forth on various developments uh, in the world, uh, particularly pertaining to uh, scientific breakthroughs. And he recognized, quite correctly, actually, that not everybody is going to benefit from these uh, breakthroughs and these advances in the same way. And he said at one point, certain people are simply going to be left behind they're not going to be participating in artificial intelligence and biogenetics and things like that then he paused and said and i quote we just don't need the vast majority of the people end quote with that statement he actually let the cat out of the bag what he was acknowledging was Uh, his intellectual indebtedness to eugenics. Eugenics was all the rage back in the 19th century. Its origins were, uh, appear to be anyway, in in Germany and Austria, but quickly picked up in Great Britain, the United States, and elsewhere. And eugenics was, uh, at one level, the recognition that some people born with birth defects, very tragic. How can we possibly keep this from happening so that we don't have people born uh, who are unable to cope the way people who lacking those birth defects are able to do? Now, at first glance, that seems like a noble thing. But if you go deeper into this, you realize that this is actually a slippery slope. Now, eugenics, as I said, was quite the, uh, the, the thing for the chattering classes. Late 19th century, well into the uh, first third of the 20th century, no less than Woodrow Wilson and uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, two self-professed progressives were enthusiastic uh, supporters of eugenics, as was, incidentally, a uh, world renowned economist, John Maynard Keynes, uh, mm-hmm. who actually created the sci- Society for Eugenics at Cambridge University. Wow. But the problem with eugenics is, as I pointed out, it's a slippery slope. Once you determine that certain people really should not be on the earth or should never have been born, uh, you're opening up a, a, a Pandora's box. And one of the people who took eugenics actually very seriously uh, in his own way was a failed artist from Vienna, a gentleman by the name of Adolf Hitler. And he made his own interpretation of eugenics, the central organizing principle of the Third Reich. Well, we know where all that led. Uh, It did not have a happy ending until millions of people died, and so eugenics fell out of favor, or rather the term eugenics. But the notion of limiting the Earth's population stayed with us, and it was reborn in the 1950s in terms of the what was then called the population movement—the notion that there were too many people on the on the earth—we uh, needed to uh, impose b- massive birth control, particularly uh, in the poorer parts of the world. And in 1968, a very influential book by the name of *The Population Bomb* uh, was written by Paul Ehrlich. And Ehrlich said, "If we don't do something about," the world's gigantically, rapidly uh, advancing population growth, uh, we will use up all of our resources. We are, he coined the term, uh, we are beyond the Earth's carrying capacity. And if we don't take drastic measures and take them quickly, people around the world will suffer and we will run out of resources such as food and the other things that we need to sustain our lives. Five years later, a similar idea took hold. And this was uh, an organization by the name of the Club of Rome, which released, released a report, picked up again by the chattering classes, called Limits to Growth. Limits to Growth was very early oriented, in that it said, aha, we accept the, uh, the arguments, of the people concerned about rapid population growth, but we need to take measures. We need to do that systematically. We need to set uh, limits to growth, and that means there are certain people who need to be the ones who determine what those limits are. Here you have the idea of people, self-anointed saviors of the planet, deciding it is we who uh, must determine what limits to growth will be imposed on the rest of the world in order to save the world. Now, this development coincided with something else that was going on. And that was an idea that again uh, originated in the 19th century in Central Europe, Uh, And that is the idea of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases rising to such levels that it would affect the climate and uh, do so in such a way that the earth would warm up to such a degree Uh, that uh, it would become largely uninhabitable unless uh, measures were taken to stop it. The theory got nowhere in the 19th century. Uh, It was kicked around in classrooms here, there, and yonder, but got nowhere until the 1980s when two very prominent politicians, one in Europe and one in the United States, in Europe, it was uh, Swedish uh, Prime Minister Olaf Paula. In the U.S., it was then-Senator Al Gore. Both had somehow, in their studies, run across this idea. They took it to heart, even though neither man had any scientific background whatsoever. Nevertheless, they latched onto it, and they made it the thing that would really guide their actions for the rest of their lives and they popularized it palma in europe and gore in the united states and elsewhere and gore had the by far the larger platform and he uh became the uh, the chief spokesman for climate alarmism at the time uh the, the notion uh, was that man-made emissions of greenhouse gases primarily through the burning of fossil fuels, but also through certain agricultural uh, practices, were increasing the uh, atmospheric levels of CO2 in the atmosphere to such an extent that we were heating up the planet and that pla- and the planet would then be afflicted by melting glaciers, rising sea levels, oh. droughts, floods, famines, you go down the whole laundry list of all the bad things that could happen. And all of this was going to be brought about by man-made, then the term was uh, global warming. Today, we simply call it climate change and- Bonner,
1: uh, Bonner let me jump in here yeah. because uh, I think I want to make an admission for both Tom and I that will uh, make many people in the audience maybe not feel too bad about where they came from in their thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would guess that the majority of our listeners recognize man-caused climate change as a fraud, uh, have enough common sense to realize that our emissions or carbon dioxide are not altering the temperature of the planet in any uh, negative way. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Tom and I uh, come from a a history where we were taken in long ago. Uh, Tom has admitted on this show that a a number of decades ago, when he started to study the environment, he actually thought that we did have an impact Mm -hmm. on the temperature of the planet until he started studying it in various college courses and and meeting some really top-notch scientists that had studied it. Uh, and, And of course, he changed his mind to the point that he understands it now. I too was taken in in the 1960s uh, by the uh, book of uh, The Population Bomb by per- uh, Paul Ehrlich and the Club of Rome and Limits to Growth. Uh, I really thought we were uh, uh, overpopulating the earth. And I actually once rented an airplane with a banner to fly over the Ohio State football stadium. And the banner said, Stop air pollution. And <laughs> air was spelled H E I R. Well, <laughs> soon I, I learned. <laughs> How wrong uh, you know I was, but the point is that educated people who don't hear the whole story uh, can start off with very wrong ideas. I was set straight by a number of uh, of scientists that explained that the more people we have, the more brain power uh, we have, and the better Earth uh, mm-hmm. will will be. So both of us. Probably come from the same position that many of our audience uh, have, uh, not realizing that they were being uh, fed misinformation, and and finally came to their senses. So we're on this. It would seem like the next milepost here might have been the uh, the book by Rachel Carson, uh, Silent uh, Spring. Uh, where do you fit that? Where do you think she and that book came in and? Uh, in increasing misinformation around the world.
2: Well, she represents a different strain of environmentalism—one—one <laughs> uh, one different from the one that that Ehrlich and Gore uh, and others have, have picked up. Just as just as every virus has its different strains, environmentalism also has strains, and 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 both have shown themselves to be terribly destructive. Rachel Carson uh, became convinced. Uh, that exposures to trace levels of certain chemicals, mostly man-made chemicals, could lead to cancer and other serious diseases. Uh, She had a way with words. Silent Spring was a huge uh, uh, seller. She became a celebrity, and she was for a long time seen as the person who really founded The modern environmental movement. And many of the regulations that were later promulgated by, say, the US Environmental Protection Agency, but environmental agencies around the world uh, were based in no small way on the notion uh, that exposure to certain levels and actually tiny levels of uh, man made uh, chemicals could be cancer-causing, and so that we needed to regulate that. And this was, part, this was in many respects done through uh, science that was uh, very dodgy, later shown to be, uh, the old expression goes, uh, it's the dose that makes the poison. If you're exposed to something, uh, uh, relatively small amounts of a substance, Not only is that not harmful, that can actually be very beneficial as you delve delve into a greater exposure to that substance. Yes, a level can be reached where it can pose a threat to human health and or the environment. Regulatory agencies, however, eager to expand their regulatory writ, develop such things as the linear the notion of, of of exposure, and developed a whole regulatory structure based primarily on extrapolations from what Rachel Carson had put in Silent Spring. The interesting thing about all of this is that Rachel Carson's notion and her version of environmentalism, or her strain of environmentalism, was actually overtaken by the what i would call the paul ehrlich slash al gore version in other words it proved less uh well less sexy uh, than than global warming slash climate change uh, i can well remember environmentalists still uh enthralled to the rachel carson view of environmentalism coming up with a goal And that goal would be: be, we will be carbon free by ninety-three. Excuse me, chlorine free by ninety-three. Chlorine was seen by these people uh, as 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 a dangerous chemical, even though it's used in almost every manufactured product on the on the face of the earth in one thing or or in one fashion or another. Quite frankly, it never really caught on. But the notion of man-made climate change, caused by our use of energy. This was a much more compelling narrative. Think about it. Uh, We human beings uh, need energy to survive. But our main source of energy, fossil fuels, is actually leading to the ultimate destruction of the planet, according to this doctrine. And we must uh, decrease as quickly as possible our use of fossil fuels and replace that with something we'll come up with uh, very, very soon, we hope. And this led, of course, to the demonization of uh, greenhouse gases, first and foremost, carbon dioxide, CO2. And if we could simply rid the atmosphere of this newfound villain CO2, or at least reduce the the atmospheric levels of CO2, then we could bring the planet back into harmony in harmony with traditional climate uh, in harmony in such a way that people would survive. The glaciers wouldn't melt. The sea levels wouldn't rise and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, none of that has as i'm sure our listeners know actually any basis on science at all in fact it's absolute nonsense uh co2 uh is known to anybody who ever had a high school uh, uh science class this is plant food life cannot exist without relatively high levels of atmospheric co2 it is in fact true That today's atmospheric levels of CO2 are higher than those uh, experienced 250-300 years ago, when we were still at the tail end of the Little Ice Age. And as the planet warmed up, when the Little Ice Age came to an end, atmospheric of CO2 levels rose, and we can be thankful that they did, because Uh, they and they that fostered plant growth uh trees shrubs what have you but also crops because we've got a lot of people living on the earth agriculture uh is the modern way that 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 we uh, have devised going back actually thousands of years to feed ever-growing numbers of people and for that you need higher atmospheric levels of co2 and I would argue that policies aimed uh, at freezing much less lowering atmospheric levels of CO2, that will lead to famine, that will lead to human disaster on a grand scale.
0: That's worth emphasizing because you know various people are saying that if we intentionally reduce CO2 down to 350, which, of course, the group 350.org wants to do, that we could be sentencing millions of people to starvation. And do you agree with that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, In fact, if we allow it to go down to 350 or 300 or even lower than that, you're not only going to have starvation, you're going to have something else that uh, few people pay that much attention to. The higher the level of CO2 in the atmosphere, the less moisture plants including crops need Uh, so if you lower the atmospheric levels of co2 you're going to have to have more water for for irrigation for uh, people to drink and what have you if you lower atmospheric co2 levels you're going to put a tremendous demand on a natural resource, water—a demand we may not be able to meet—and so those who telling us that we are saving the planet uh, from catastrophic global warming by lowering the atmospheric levels of CO2 are actually setting in motion future famines, future droughts, uh, future calamities by lowering agricultural productivity and and. Placing increased demands on water, and water shortages have been a part of human history ever since we have been around. And the more- right, well,
1: Bonner, Bonner, let me stop you there. Uh, you and Tom and I totally understand that everything the progressive liberals who are preaching what you have described are really sentencing the end of life on the earth.
0: Uh, We know this,
1: and I'm guessing a large percentage of our audience has become aware of it. Do any of them know what they're doing? I mean, are they just dumb enough to know that they they really, if their plan was carried out, would be destroying life on Earth? Or do they have some other uh, interim goal? I've always thought that once they create a communist world, they might back off somewhat. What do you think?
2: Uh, I don't think the vast majority of the people who are pushing the uh, global warming alarmist agenda have any understanding of or any interest in understanding actually the very predictable consequences of what they want to impose on the rest of us. Look (laughs) at these people who uh, gathered uh, a couple of weeks ago in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, for COP27, COP Conference of the Parties 27, the 27th meeting of people who know nothing about the climate, the vast majority of them know nothing about the climate, who know uh, nothing about energy, who know very little about science, Uh, who flew there, by the way, according to one report, uh, in 400 private jets, burning all sorts of fossil fuels th- to get to Sharm Char- el-Sheikh, giving you s- some idea of a level of hypocrisy here, but you're also giving you an idea of the bubble in which these people live. There, This is one gigantic echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Everyone agrees with everyone else, but no one has really the foggiest idea of what he's doing, with the possible exception of the awareness on some of these people's parts uh, that they are aggregating to themselves an enormous amount of power which i think what this is ultimately what this is all about if you uh, demonize carbon dioxide and say uh we can no longer use fossil fuels because it contributes to atmospheric levels of of co2 which it does uh, in a small way uh if if we're we're going to do away, if you thus we need to control the use of energy once you control the use of energy you control uh the people who use energy and people who need energy this is why uh, the Paul Ehrlich, Al Gore kind of eugenics approach to environmentalism ultimately eclipsed Rachel Carson approach to environmentalism simply because uh, they are the, the, the former uh, is a, a pathway to power power on a grand scale something that could never be achieved with rachel carson nobody talks about rachel carson today but we have cop 27 we'll probably have cop 47 or cop (laughs) cop 57 it will go on and on and on because it's this is about uh, power and it's also about money because purveyors of um, technologies who claim that their technology or their source of energy the usual suspects, wind turbines, solar solar panels, and what have you, uh, they're the ones who stand to benefit from this financially hugely. And investors on Wall Street and elsewhere are heavily invested in these technologies. So they certainly want to promote this. So what you have uh is a combination of power and money, and that is what is driving
0: all of this Mm -hmm. so in fact it's just a rationalization for them to say oh well you know we're saving the climate because their main incentive is different we have to go for a break now we'll be right back with dr bonner cohen talking about the origins of the climate scare and i'd like to ask him next if we should be approaching this entirely differently uh bonner after the break can we talk about whether we should be promoting more co2 instead of trying to defend ourselves against the climate issue Visit genesisfogger.com/outloud to receive a fifteen percent discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code outloud. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all fifty states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. So we're back with Dr. Bonner Cohen. Senior Fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based National Center for Public Policy Research, where he concentrates on energy, natural resources, and international relations. You know, Dr. Cohen, one of the things that strikes me is that sometimes when the truth is so outrageously different to what people think, people are afraid to bring up the truth. And in this case, people talk about carbon, pollution, you know, and that sort of thing. What would you think of the idea of actually going to the microphone at events and telling people like 350.org or their supporters in politics, if you succeed in your goals, you're gonna sentence millions of people to starvation. Now, I find most people on our side are, are afraid to bring that up, but do you think we should be braver in that way?
2: Oh, absolutely, because I will tell you, if we keep doing what we're doing, We're going to wind up losing this argument. We're not only going to lose the argument, we're going to lose millions and millions of lives. So there is a truth that needs to be spoken. And this is not any time for timidity. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to tell the truth. Look, we're currently at something like 420 parts per million atmospheric level of CO2. Uh, We would be infinitely better off as inhabitants of planet Earth and animal life and plant life would be infinitely better off if those levels of CO2 were up to at least 750 or 800 uh, parts per per million, because we've got 8 billion people living on the earth, and we need to feed them.
0: Didn't plants, most of the plants in our environment now evolve at a time when CO2 was much higher?
2: Oh, that's exactly right. And Uh, Plant life was under enormous strains. Of course, it always goes under under enormous strains every time there's an ice age. And by the way, there've been lots of ice ages. Not not just there was no the ice age. According to one count, there were there were as many as seventeen. Some severe, some relatively mild. And the one that we went through from about 1350 to 1800 or 1850, called the Little Ice Age. Saw atmospheric levels of CO2 drop to as low as 250 parts per million, and plant life suffered, and agriculture suffered. People starved to death. Fortunately, and the human beings had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with it. Uh, the uh the little ice age came to an end the planet warmed up co2 levels arose and what we're actually experiencing today and this is a great irony is the planet is greening the planet Mm -hmm. is much greener today and there are gps satellite photos that, 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 that show this including perhaps the sahara desert it could in fact make a comeback sahara desert wasn't always a desert it was a <laughs> grasslands at one time it was inhabited by human beings uh, there was even a primitive level of agriculture there uh, but once the uh <clears throat> once the ice once the uh, the climate changes and, and the term climate change is redundant it's, it's 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 something that's been going on from time immemorial and always will go on the sahara desert dried up and uh, is the desert that we know today but it could conceivably come back uh, and be uh, uh, be able to at least support grasslands as it once did in the past. The, the notion that we can get nature and we can freeze it and we can order order it up just like you're ordering up, up a meal in a restaurant. Well, if we allow, uh, if we can hold the uh, uh, rise in temperatures over the next uh, uh, 50 years to one and one and a half degree Celsius. Uh, then everybody's going to live happily ever after while suppressing the atmospheric levels of CO2. Well, we can't do that. We as human beings yeah. can we do remarkably th- clever things, but we can also oh. do remarkably stupid things. And one yeah. of the... Re-
1: adding, things- adding to your point, uh, yeah. Bonner, I wrote an article today uh, aimed at at everybody's practical life. Uh, if we continue to do uh, use less fossil fuel, and more wind and solar, which does not support the grid, beginning this winter, we will see more blackouts around the world. That's right. And that I, I, wrote an, I wrote an article, what will a blackout mean to you on day one, day two, mm-hmm. and a week good. down the road? The, <clears throat> the, the lights aren't going to work, your refrigerator isn't going to work, your, uh, there are all sorts of things that you do every day Uh, The traffic lights needed to get you to work, the machines at work, all the things that will affect your life today, tomorrow, and a week down the road, which you don't think of how absolutely horrendous it is. We've had a few blackouts, but we've managed most of them. Uh, Most people may be aware of the one we had a year ago uh, from February in Texas, where there was loss of life tremendous right. economic uh, damage, we, we got through it. But as more and more of these occur in a cold winter, uh, we'll get through it less quickly and more people will be impacted. And, and in a sense, that gives me some optimism that people will, will wake up to it. But mm-hmm. one of the things that we're, we're seeing throughout society is, is a suppression of dissent. I mean, if Mm -hmm. you and I and Tom go out in many places in public and explain the reality of the science that supports no impact of man on the climate of the planet, uh, we'll be shouted down, we could lose our jobs, everybody would want to suppress us, which is part of the Lysenkoism that took hold of the Soviet Union decades ago, and really, it all Started in 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 a worldwide way, as you explained in an earlier lecture, uh, beginning with the founder, one of the founders of the Communist Party in Italy, Antonio Gramsci. Uh, let's go back to that point in yeah. history.
2: Uh, yeah, let's do because we we can see how institutions in which we once had a certain degree of trust. Uh, have been transformed before our very eyes. And we need to understand how that happened. There was a, one, of, a, one of the founders of the Communist Party of Italy was a guy by the name of Antonio Gramsci. Now, Mr. Gramsci was no fool. He recognized uh, that according to Marxist doctrine, the proletariat uh, would uh, be suppressed so much that it would uh, rise up it would overthrow the bourgeoisie, uh, dictatorship of the proletariat would, would set in, blah, blah, blah. Well, he knew that was never going to happen. That isn't really what happened in Russia in 1917. And it wasn't going to happen, uh, not even in the world of the 1930s uh, that was in the midst of a deep depression his notion was an entirely different one yes he still wanted to create the red paradise on earth but he wanted to go about it in a different way and the way in which he would go about it he says look we need to transform institutions from within and he called this the long march through the institutions slowly but surely Our people, meaning his people, uh, would enter into every imaginable institution. This would be everything from corporate boardrooms, school boards, bureaucracies at the federal, state or province or local level, trade associations and what have you. And over time, and this takes decades, and it happens in such a way that people don't even really notice it, uh, you can take over. Uh, one bureaucracy or one business or one industry after the other, have your vocabulary uh, become their vocabulary. And this makes transforming society into into what you want it to be so much easier. Uh, It can even for the most part be done without bloodshed uh, because people for the most part don't even recognize that this is happening until it's too late. And uh, you know, Mr. Gramsci uh, ended his days in one of Mussolini's prisons where he presumably didn't die from natural causes, but his ideas are still very much with us today. And the long march through the institutions has enabled the left to take over one institution after the other, which makes to your earlier point jay uh the suppression of dissent all that much easier why because the media uh the, the many scientific associations and what have you are in con- are, are, are now controlled by the left and they suppress dissent they certainly suppress it on climate. We experience that every day. And by the way, they also suppress dissent during COVID. Anyone who challenged the lockdowns and the school closures and what have you were subjected uh, to the same ostracization uh, as people who called into question uh, the notion of a man-made global warming. And the, again, taking us back to uh, Lysenko. Uh, this enables. Uh, the modern version of Lysenkoism, the one we used to laugh about in the Cold War, well, how could the how could the Russians have been all that stupid to allow this jackass li- Lysenko to have so much influence? And yet we have today, uh, courtesy of the environmental movement and the inroads it has made uh, in our society, we have our own version of Lysenkoism defined as government-imposed junk science. Uh, for the furtherance of the agenda of those who are already in power and those who want to make a lot of money on that, and the suppression of any dissent, uh, including the professional ostracization of those who call any of this in question. And that mm-hmm. is, you know, this is really the, uh, the juggernaut uh, that we are uh, faced with well. today.
1: Today is an interesting day to bring this topic up, this very day, because it's even happened within our government agencies. Oh, yeah. This very day in history, NASA fired off a rocket that is going to circle the moon, uh, and and we're going to learn things scientifically. And this is a a great advance, a good thing for NASA, although Tom and I are not sure that the hardware they used was quite the right way to do it. But Mm -hmm. be that as it may, uh, it's an advance. And yet having accomplished what to most, certainly all our listeners is an amazing feat. We can't believe the other things that NASA and NOAA, the National Oceanographic uh, and Atmospheric Agency, uh, they put out absolute uh, junk science. They make up stuff uh, in order to reach a conclusion that gives the government uh, more control over what what is going on. It is absolutely horrendous. But I want to read something of of optimism at this point. This has crept up on most of us, uh, uh, unawares of Gramsci and the march through institutions, but it fascinates me in in studying the speeches of uh, President Kennedy back in the 1960s that he had the wherewithal and the foresight to recognize what was going on. Uh, I'm not sure that did not lead uh, to his demise, but I came up with a quote in one of his speeches that I think uh, the audience will be extremely interested in hearing, and I quote by President Kennedy, we are as a people inherently and historically opposed to secret societies and secret oaths and secret proceedings, but we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of freedom and choice. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources for the building of a tightly knit highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed and not published. Its mistakes are buried and not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned. No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. That is why the American lawmaker the, excuse me, the Athenian lawmaker, Solon, decreed it a crime for any citizen to shriek from controversy. And I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. It's a shame that his words so many years ago have really not been uh, been heard and acted upon Uh, It's never too late, but that's what we must do now.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, But what's really sad about that is Kennedy, of course, was talking for the most part uh, about the Soviet Union and uh, what was then seen as the monolithic uh, danger of communism. Sadly, uh, he's actually describing modern uh, so-called Western societies, whether it's the United States or uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's Canada, or the various uh, governments in in Europe who are becoming very woke, uh, who are also using a kind of soft power, at least it's soft now, What it would be tomorrow is another question, uh, to uh, set set themselves up in a position of power so that they too suppress dissent, so that they too say that certain things are out of bounds and they are not – in any way averse to using the instruments of the state to keep people in line and do exactly what they were talking and and to do exactly as their betters uh tell them to do kennedy interestingly followed dwight eisenhower in office and upon leaving office uh, eisenhower um I gave a speech in which he most famously warned about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Uh, he knew something about that, having been a career military man, but he also said something else. He warned about the government takeover of science because he recognized uh, that if you allow the government to determine what is scientifically acceptable and what is scientifically not acceptable, and you reward financially through, through grants uh, and uh, other uh, sinecures, uh, those who toe the line and, and punish those who are not, you're ultimately going to undermine science. That part of Eisenhower's speech turned out to be every bit as prescient as what Kennedy was was pointing out. And both of these men, born of an earlier generations Eisenhower actually in in 1890, never considered by his contemporaries a deep thinker, uh, but actually, in this particular case, he knew exactly what he was talking about, and he was as prescient. Uh, in in foreseeing the situation that we are confronted with today with a gigantic lie being uh, uh, perpetrated uh, by those in power, the ruling elites. And if we allow them to continue to do so, uh, they're going to do an enormous amount of harm. And that harm is going to affect the people uh, least able to defend themselves against this, uh, particularly the, the poor in the world, uh, you know, something like two billion people uh, don't even have electricity in their homes at night. We're talking about people primarily uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and the Indian subcontinent. And modern environmentalism, uh, by arguing that we need to save the planet from climate change, would deny these people electricity. You, you really think Africa is going to be helped by wind turbines and solar panels? Uh, not in the least. Or that we ourselves are going to be going to benefit from electrifying uh, our sources of energy through uh, the various uh, batteries, uh, the lithium-ion batteries and the like, which will have an enormously detrimental environmental impact. In fact, they're already having that. Uh, will cost a fortune and, by the way, will chiefly benefit the People's Republic of China, uh, which is the big geopolitical winner uh, of the uh, alarmist global warming agenda. Do away with fossil fuels, of which the uh, uh, People's Republic of China has very few. Embrace a renewable energy, uh, the raw materials of which uh, are are under the control of the Chinese Communist Party, and you have a geopolitical dependence uh, on a power that, believe me, does not wish you well.
0: Mm-hmm. I had a strategic question for both of you. You know, most of the conservatives I talk to, they say that we can't discuss these sorts of things in public because it's too big. I mean, it's uh, it's it's frightening. It'll make people turn off. They'll say you're a denier. And so instead, they nibble around at the edges of the issue. They don't tell you that environmentalism as it's currently operating is, in, sense, in a sense, a death cult. Okay, it's a death cult. And you could even see labeling the UN conference that's happening right now as a death cult because of the consequences of moving to the so-called green energy and the consequences of lowering CO2 and all that. I wonder, I mean, you know, it's really hard to get media attention, but strategically, do you think they're right to just try and nibble at the edges or should they go full bore and say point blank, this is a death cult and here's why?
2: Uh, uh tom i think they have to go full bore if all we do is nibble around the uh, edges we will lose uh the truth there is a truth that needs to be told now it needs to be told by people who really know what they're talking about uh anytime you go over the top you say things that you cannot back up with scientific data and what have you then you're going to get yourself in trouble believe me they will come after you uh mm-hmm. But if we have enough people who are articulate enough and who understand the nature of the game that is being played here, don't accept the other side's narrative about man-made, in this case, about man-made global warming, uh, challenge that narrative at its core. Mm-hmm. And say no, uh, because once you concede that narrative, you're conceding the vocabulary to the other side, and you're going to find yourself in a fight, you're going to lose and lose badly. So, mm-hmm. unless we go full bore, but intelligently full bore, we're going to lose. And the stakes here are absolutely enormous. And uh we <laughs> we've reached the point where we can't fool around, uh, because these people are in control. They're in control in the United States, they're in control in Canada, they're in control uh, in Europe with a couple of exceptions, and uh, there are people elsewhere in Beijing who would be absolutely delighted to take advantage of that, to take geostrategic advantage of that, and they're doing that right now.
0: hmm so, Jay, what do you think of the idea of actually having an article entitled something like Climate Scare is a Death Cult and show exactly, bam, 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 why it is?
1: Uh, I think we need a series of articles piling one on the other, and it's a great idea. We have not taken a st- as strong a position. You and I are literally publishing articles uh, every week on these issues, and I think we're, we're going at it head on. But obviously not strong enough. And one of the reasons I wrote the article today that'll appear next week is trying to explain to people the damage they'll see in their lives uh, immediately uh, as we see uh, energy requirements uh, become deficient. Uh, I believe the more people suffer, the more chance we'll have at waking them up. I was certainly wrong about the recent election. I thought there would be Uh, a huge change in the House of Representatives that did not occur. So obviously, people didn't suffer enough. But as each winter goes by, uh, the suffering will increase. And it just seems to me there has to be a point where people will wake up and realize they've been led in a a very wrong direction. And if we keep uh, accurate science going out there, uh, the, a combination of their suffering and our transmission of accurate science will one day turn around. I, I remain very optimistic and uh, our listeners may have heard me talk about this before. Uh, I went a few weeks ago to New Orleans to see the uh, World War II museum. It could be the greatest museum in the world because you <coughs> spend a couple uh, days there and you experience from beginning to end the war in Japan, the war in Europe, in Germany and Italy and North Africa. And as you go through it, and as as I said, it takes a couple of days, but you're going through a number of years. Uh, If you begin uh, at at Pearl Harbor and and the first Nazi invasion, a couple of years later, we are losing the war. I mean, it's literally hopeless. Uh, There's no way we can, beat back the Axis powers, but we did. I mean, we we hung together and, and really people came to the fore and I really believe we can do the same here. It's a very similar war. We're not losing as many people each day uh, physically, but we certainly are psychologically. Uh, so long-term, I think we're going to win it. Uh, probably not in a year or two, I think within a decade, but we, we've got to increase the action we take pretty much the way uh, Tom has described it and Bonner has
0: supported it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap up there, but we certainly got a great topic for future articles. That, <laughs> I was just writing down ideas. Truth needs to be told, Bonner. will to <laughs> Yeah, so this is uh, being our guest today, Dr. Bonner R. Cohen, a senior fellow with the Washington, D.C. based National Center for Public Policy Research. And we'll include under the audio when it goes on podcast on Monday, the video of his excellent talk, which goes into even more detail than we did today about the origins and drivers of the climate scare, as well as his book, The Green Wave, Environmentalism and Its Consequences, which, as we discussed today, can be pretty darn bad. So thanks, <laughs> thanks for being on our show, Bonner.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: Okay, well this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.